Welcome to you if you are new to Jesus. Really grateful that you're here. This is a, a perfect Sunday to be here if you are exploring who Jesus is because our hope this Christmas season is to, is to figure out who is this child that was born in Bethlehem, uh, placed in a manger. Who, who is this? And what has he promised to do for us, for the world? And so that's what we're exploring. Glad that you're with us. We're gonna be in John chapter one again. And we're going to look at the last four verses of, uh, you just heard 18 verses read, but we're going to look at the last four um, here on the fourth week, this week of love, uh, this Advent season. And today we're going to explore the life-changing news that Jesus has come near. A weary world can rejoice because Jesus has come near. If you're like me, uh, I have the belief at times that God is pulling away from me. That whether it's my sin or feeling like I disappointed God or whatever it is that he, he is kind of pulling back. Maybe that somehow my presence has become annoying or too much. And so now he's got to kind of take a step back from Matthew. Is that true? Is that how God works? Is that his character? We're going to explore today the good news of Christmas being the message that God has chosen to come near. That it's the opposite of what I'm feeling. That God is relentless in his pursuit of nearness with each one of us. I needed a good book to read uh, during the pandemic. Some of you will remember the moment when Bonnie Henry, I think it was March 12th, is that right? 2020, we all remember the moment, the day. And she made her announcement and that evening I went on to Amazon and I thought, I need a good book. This is gonna take a while. <laughs> you know, having no idea what would happen? I was like, it's going to take a while. So I bought a book. And it was this thick. And, uh, and I read it during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, some of you are like, I read 50 books. I'm like, good for you. I read one. Uh, it was, <laughs> but it was this thick. See? And I learned all about Vincent Van Gogh. That's the, so it was a biography on Vincent Van Gogh. And it was my pandemic book. And as I read it, uh, it was actually really sad, actually. And... I, I had no idea that his, his dad, Vincent Van Gogh's dad, was a pastor, and Vincent wanted to be like his dad for years, but his dad never understood Vincent and found his own son to be annoying, complicated, troubling, and gave him no encouragement. He kept his distance from his son and discouraged Vincent from being a preacher. But Vincent really wanted to be like his dad, so he went to seminary. He took, tried to take these courses. He kind of flunked out of seminary uh, and had just lived with this sense that he was a great disappointment to his father. This sense of abandonment started when, well, probably started before this, but a big moment was when he was 11 years old. He was sent away to a boarding school. And it was the beginning of this sense of abandonment. And his biographers write this, quote, from the moment his parents drove away in their carriage, 
loneliness overwhelmed him. Years later, he would compare his plight to that of the forsaken Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out to his father to rescue him. It was interesting, what had happened to Vincent is Vincent had great faith in God when he was little, but as his own dad abandoned him and wanted nothing to do with him, Vincent also simultaneously felt God abandoning him and pulling away from him. And he's so long, I mean, it's been really interesting for me to look at Vincent van Gogh's art and actually just feel like this sadness, actually, when I look at it. And I just think of his, his lifelong pursuit of intimacy, nearness. And he just lived with this emptiness, this void that was never filled in his lifetime. And the reason I'm using this image is, if I'm honest, in my, those quiet moments, do I have a little bit of Vincent in me? Where I turn to examine my own life and at the core of my life is this deep desire for nearness, for love, for intimacy, for the gift of presence. And I believe that behind each of these deep desires for intimacy is a desire for God, for God himself, to be near God, for God to be near me. Does God want to be near me? You know, we ask in those honest moments. Does God want to be near me? But we hear the words of that Christmas hymn, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. What happened on that new and glorious morn? It says, fall on your knees, Hear the angel voices, O night divine, the night when Christ was born. And the question we're asking as we come into today is, did something happen on that night that will change the perspective fully in our lives that God is not pulling away and that he wants to be near? Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes to the reality that the idea that you're pulling away from us is a lie. And fill us, overwhelm us with a thrill of hope to the true reality that you are drawing close, that you've always wanted to be close, that your whole desire is to be in us and us in you. Heal us, God. Heal us of those places of emptiness, abandonment. God, we lift up our lives to you and pray that you would come fill us with that hope, that thrill of hope again. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, to get to that reality, we're gonna have to do some work. We're gonna have to unpack a few verses of scripture. Are you ready to do that? As my Northern Ireland friend says, you with me? Matthew, are you with me? I'm like, yes, I'm with you, John. So grab your Bible, John 1. We'll look at verses 14 to 18. John 1, 14 to 18. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, 
This is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So this is the word of the Lord. All right, so again, we're going to do a little bit of homework here. We're going to dive deep. We're going to notice some hyperlinks. We're going to be in the Old Testament for a while. We're going to unpack the word logos. We're going to look at the word glory. We're just going to spend some time looking at the tabernacle. But all of it, I hope, by the end of this, you hear that God wants to be near. Let's dive in. Verse 14, the word became flesh. Let's pause right there. The word became flesh. What does that mean? Well, word in the Greek is the word logos. And then if you were here three weeks ago, we looked at this. Logos. Logos is the Greek word and it's loaded. To Greeks, the logos was reason. It was the rational principle at the heart of the universe. It wasn't a person. It was like a force, as it were. Uh, Think Star Wars. Um, And you you would say that the logos was like the logic at the center of the universe. It was the building block of life. And uh, yeah, the center of, of all of life. And so that's the logos for Greeks. But for Jews, when they heard the word logos, they would have immediately thought of Genesis 1. When God made the world, he spoke the world into existence through his words. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so a Jew, when they're reading this, they're hearing the word that went out from God's mouth and created the universe. John is saying, that's Jesus. The word that went out that created all things is Jesus. Through Jesus, all things were made. It's incredible. And so John puts these two concepts to Greeks and Jews together. And he says the logic at the center of the cosmos and the word that made the universe is in a manger. It's in a manger. It's in a feeding trough for animals. The word became flesh. The word became human. The word was born to Mary and Joseph on that starlit night. The word, the logic, The creative word is lying in a manger. So the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And made his dwelling among us. What is that there? Made his dwelling. The Greek phrase for made his dwelling can easily be translated as set up his tent or pitched his tent. The Greek Greek word is skenao. Say that to your neighbor, skenao. Set up a tent. That's what it means. Set up a tent. It's a tent. Now, why, why a tent? Why all of a sudden we're reading John 1 and, and we see this image of a tent? Well, John is using this word to hyperlink back to a much older biblical image. Remember, hyperlink, you have an email and there's a little word in blue and you click it and it takes you to a new website, you know, takes you somewhere different. This is what you would do. In this passage, click that word. Skenao, right? And it takes you to what? To the tabernacle. Thank you. To the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. So some of you who are new to Jesus, maybe you started reading the Bible. Uh, This is the second book of the Bible, book of Exodus. We first hear about a tent, which is called the tabernacle. The tabernacle. See, humanity had been separated from God because of sin. But God would not let that be 
the forever case. He was going to heal us. He was going to draw close to us. And he chose to do that amongst his people in a tent, of all things. The people of Israel had been saved from slavery in Egypt. God brought them into this desert. And it was there in the desert where he had rescued them. And he said, I'm going to come close. I'm going to come near my people. And he promised to meet his people in a tent. Do you enjoy setting up a tent? (laughs) How many of you enjoy setting up a tent? Let's see those honest hands. Okay, one, two, three. Yeah, a good 150th of the group here. Uh, Yeah, so you would be excited to know that you can read large parts of the Old Testament and learn all about tents and how to set it up. So just go, feel free to do that over the Christmas break. Um, because the rest of us who don't like setting up tents, we read the Old Testament, we're like, why so much about one tent? You know, it's like how the tent poles and the pegs and then what you put in the tent, and it's just on and on and on. Well, I hope that in the next few minutes, you'll see why. (laughs) Because it is this beautiful picture of God saying, I want to be with you and near you. You know, actually, the funny thing, I picture with my own family when I was growing up as a kid with my parents, uh, those moments when when we... set up a tent together and stayed together, you're close. There's this nearness, right? More so than in your home, right? There's this nearness, this closeness. And this is is what God is longing to do, is to be with his family, to be close to them. And so the 12 tribes of Israel would all be kind of encircled around and camped around. And in the heart of the 12 tribes of Israel was the tabernacle. The Levites, the priests, um, they were kind of there. They were allowed access there to the center Um, surrounding the temple. And there would be six main features of the tabernacle that you would notice if you were to walk in. If you walked into the tabernacle, you would see the bronze altar, the bronze basin, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the Ark of the Covenant. Six different things. We're not going to go through all of those, but I want to give you a taste, a little picture of a few of them to show you simply this, that God wanted to be close. God wanted to be near. So you walk into the tabernacle, and the first thing you see is the bronze altar. And on the bronze altar, this is where animals were sacrificed. Why were animals sacrificed? To deal with sin. The idea here was that this was a place to say thank you and be forgiven of sin. Notice this. The idea, the first thing that you're running into, what has to be dealt with is this barrier between you and God. So the sin is dealt with. You're forgiven. It's a place to say thank you to God. You walk in, and one of the things you would see was was a menorah in the holy place. It's called the golden lampstand. Of course, it's the source of light inside the tabernacle, but which reminds us of Genesis 1, right? Let there be light. But you start to notice in the holy place, you look around, and a lot of it are like trees and fruit. And And they're pictures of like the Garden of Eden, Walking around the garden. Some of you are familiar with the story in Genesis 1 that, that Genesis 1 and 2, that the humanity was walking with God in a garden. And it was like God was there, they were there, there was no barrier. They were walking in the nearness of God, next to God. And so you're walking around the holy place and you're seeing all of this that looks like Eden. And even the candle holders on the menorah, it says in Exodus 25, are shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. So there's a tree as you get closer to God? Is this reminding you of the tree of life? 
in the Garden of Eden. You would also see the table of showbread. These were 12 loaves of bread that were offered to the Lord. And the 12 loaves of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel set before the Lord each Sabbath and the priests would eat, eat it. But what is this a picture of? It's a picture of sharing a table with God, of eating a meal with God, deep communion with God. Do you see a picture of what was to come as we gather at communion to take the bread and remember the body of our Lord Jesus, right? But here's a meal. Here's a meal. God wants to come close at a meal. And finally, I'll, I'll just mention the Ark of the Covenant. And that's in the center of the center of the temple. It's called the Holy of Holies. It's the space where God dwelled. And in the Ark, there were the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. But on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were these two angels with outstretched wings that kind of stretched over the Ark. And in between those angels was an empty space. And that empty space was called the Mercy Seat. And it was said that the glory of God, that God himself was said to reside right above them, in between them. And so these two angelic creatures bowing before God. So start, start picturing this. You're part of the people of Israel and you walk into the tabernacle and you say, all of a sudden, my sin is dealt with as I walk in. And then I'm like walking with God in the garden and experiencing his light and then I'm sharing a meal with God. And then God is actually there between the angels. There's this picture of God coming near, of God not pulling away from his people, but longing to be close to his people. God wanted to dwell with them and in them and among them, nearness. So you go back to John 1, and John 1 says this, the word became flesh and set up his tent among us. Somehow Jesus is this new tabernacle. Somehow Jesus will forgive us of sin, will be a sacrifice for sin, will be the light of the world, will hang upon a new tree of life that will give us life. He'll offer his own body as bread to be eaten. And why do you think there's two angels in the tomb on Easter Sunday? And a slab. There's no body, right? It's two angels. It's the presence of God, the holy of holies. Jesus is alive, right? And longs to be with his people. Jesus is the tabernacle of God. Now, back to Exodus. Now, once the tabernacle was all set up, Exodus 40, we read this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God moved in. God has moved into the... It's so thick that Moses can't even get in. God was there. God had moved in. Now, why do I tell you this story of glory? Well, because John's talking about it in John 1. Listen, he says, verse 14, we read this. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his, I'm going to do it again. We have seen his, 
the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. This is the most beautiful hyperlink to, to Exodus. In Jesus, the glory of God has come near his people again. In Jesus, the glory of God has tabernacled with his people. In Jesus, the glory of God is fully found. Glory. You know, I use that word and I'm like, I don't even know what I'm saying when I talk, say glory. What is glory? Well, glory of God, as you look at the Old Testament, is always God's beauty, his strength, his holiness, his power. And so we see God's glory showing up in Egypt when he sets his people free from slavery. And we see God's glory on Mount Sinai when he gives Moses the law. And we see God's glory when his voice speaks from the fire. We actually see God's glory in a crazy story. You can read it another time. Exodus 33, when Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, well, you know, no one can actually look upon me, but I'm gonna walk by. And as God walks by, it's the wildest story. He covers Moses' eyes. And as he walks by, and then he lets his hand go, and Moses can see only the back of God, which for Moses was enough. He was overwhelmed by even seeing the back of God. But notice what John is saying. Jesus, his glory is not some abstract vision or clouds or fire or radiant light or simply the back. No, Jesus is the glory of God. You want to know the glory of God, John says? Stare long and hard at Jesus. John had seen the glory of God because he had seen Jesus. John himself had touched the glory of God because he had touched Jesus. John had leaned against the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. So John was leaning on the glory of God. When you think of the glory of God, North Langley, do you think of Jesus? Listen to Hebrews 1. The Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the glory of God. So what does this mean? It means that the glory of God, in all that that means, came near, comes close. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Listen to the Bible. No one has ever seen God, but in Jesus we see God. Welcome to the Bible, right? <laughs> what does that mean? Just take it all in. You can't see God, but in Jesus you see God. The distant God out there has become the intimate God right here among us. He set up his tent. He's here. The distant God out there has become so close right here. His glory has moved in among us. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates it. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The glory of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, all of God moved in, in Jesus. And you know, the people of Israel, 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 miserable, no, uh, at times miserable, the people of Israel were so thankful that God had come near, they always received it as grace, grace. Sometimes we read the Old Testament, we don't think grace, right? That's, 
But it's important to see that Israel always saw God coming near as an act of grace. God had given them the tabernacle, the temple, the law. It was grace from God, right? Of all the people of the earth, you know, he came near to them. But John is here to say, it gets way better than that. It gets way better than that. This will be a gift to all nations of the world. It says, verse 16, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is saying, there is a richer grace. Yes, it was good. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a richer grace, a fuller grace, a deeper grace. God is here, and God wants to be near you. Uh, in 1998, the year I graduated from high school, a fun movie came out, which had been one of my favorites for a long time. Uh, Jim Carrey played a character named Truman in a movie called The Truman Show. And I'm about to just completely ruin the movie for you. But again, 1998, so 25 years, you've had an opportunity to do this. <laughs> but unbeknownst to Truman, he lives in a bubble. He doesn't realize it, but his whole life is fake. Nothing is real. It's all scripted, uh, and so there's millions of people in the world who are watching his life like reality TV, but he has no idea that like he's in a bubble, and all the people in his life are, are characters, right? They're, you know, actors, as it were. It's a terrible feeling, right, once he realizes it. But the, but the, but the person dictating every event in Truman's life, manipulating Truman, is a man named Kristoff. Just think about it for a second. Christ, Christ, right? It's a reference to Christ. Manipulating Truman from the comfort of his producer's chair. And the movie was uh, a critique, I think, of, of Christianity. This idea that Christ is there in his producer's chair, just kind of manipulating things for people's entertainment. Distant, not in the bubble, outside the bubble removed, somewhere veiled, definitely unknowable. But then Christmas happened. Christmas happened and everything changed. And I wanted to say this. Deism, deism is this idea that God is distant, you know? In the, in, the, in the 18th century, this popular view of God was called deism. And it was, it was this idea that God is a great clockmaker. And he kind of, like old clock, like wound up the clock and then kind of set it there and just kind of sits back and just lets the clock do its thing. Sickness, war, loneliness, whatever it is, sin. He just kind of, kind of let, it, let it tick along. But he's removed, right? This is the idea that the Truman Show had of, of deism, right? God removed, stepped back, veiled, unknowable. But again, like I just said, but then Christmas happened, right? Christmas is a protest against deism. Christmas is a protest to the idea that God is distant and uninvolved. For 2,000 years, the Christian church has boldly proclaimed, God is not distant, God is not pulling back, God longs to be with his people. His great desire is to pull his people closer, to come near to those he loves. I think of God's longing to be with us 
And I think of the words from Death Cab for Cutie's Transatlanticism. I need you so much closer. It's like what I feel God is saying to the world. I need you so much closer. So come on. Come close. Come near, right? Sin separates us from God, but God wants you so much closer. So what does God do? He comes near. He comes near. He not only comes in a tabernacle and comes in a temple, but he shows up on that starlit night in Bethlehem, born in a manger. He grows up. He suffers on a cross. He gives up his life for you and I. He sheds his own blood that we might receive forgiveness of sins. He rises on the third day. He ascends to heaven, and then he pours out his spirit and pours out his spirit again so that Apostle Paul cannot figure out whether we're in Christ or Christ is in us or whether it's both, and it's such nearness, such intimacy. And this is the great hope we have, that God wants you, that God longs for you to be close to you. Do you believe that? I think deep down, each of us lives with the fear that we're unwanted. Like Van Gogh, we wonder if we are wanted. Does God actually want to be close to me? At the end of his Dutch years and after the death of his father, Vincent painted a painting in October of 1885. It's called Still Life with Bible. Vincent had walked away from faith in the God his father believed in. And you can check out this image later on. Google it. But his father, Vincent's father, had died. And I'll explain the painting in just a second, but a precursor to the painting. Vincent's father had died suddenly, and actually many blamed Vincent for stressing his dad out so much, so much that he killed him. Can you imagine walking around with your family and friends all believing that you killed your own dad by stressing him out? And Vincent... Vincent's eyes, his father never loved him, never drew near to him. So after his dad died, he opened the Bible, the symbol of his father, the preacher. And next to the Bible, he painted uh, a candle uh, which, has been, which had been snuffed out. For Vincent, this was a picture of all faith, all love, all intimacy between him and his father being snuffed out. And his biographers write, Quote, to complete his chronicle of rejection, grief, self-reproach, and defiance, Vincent added at the last minute a new object, an extinguished, an extinguished candle. An extinguished candle. All love extinguished. That is weariness. Carry that with you your whole life. And in those moments of honesty, if we're honest, do we carry even a hint of this, of what Vincent felt? Of wondering if we're loved. Of wondering if others want to be near us. Of wondering if God wants to be near us. I had this really incredible moment of prayer and this does not happen to me a lot, but a few weeks ago, um, I knew I needed to pray for a friend of mine who was going through a hard time. And I was thinking, how can I encourage him? And so I sat down to pray with a different friend, and we were praying, 
or my friend. Hopefully this is making sense. <laughs> Um, and so I sat down with a, a friend of mine. We were praying. We were just lifting this guy up to the Lord. And my friend was actually praying, and I was just trying to listen. And, and again, this does not happen to me very often. But a word kind of like, I saw like this word with my eyes closed. And it was like a movie. You know, like when it, the word starts small and it goes whoosh, like this. <laughs> like whoosh. And uh, so I just had closed my eyes, and I was just like praying with my friend. And then all of a sudden, boom, this word. And it was the word wanted, W-A-N-T-E-D, wanted. And I had this sense that, like, this was the word that I needed to share with this friend of mine. And so a couple days later, I met with this friend, and I was able to share this word to let him know, God wants you. And, like, this was weird. Like, I don't have moments like that often, and I just need to tell you, like, God wants you. And we had a really powerful moment of prayer together. But when I was thinking, when I was preparing this message, um, I felt like this was a word for today. And that this wasn't just a word for my friend, but it's a word for each one of you. That you are wanted. God wants you. God wants you. My default assumption is that God is actually pulling back away from me. He's pulling back. That's my assumption. But to hear the message that I'm wanted, that God throughout history has continued to move closer and closer and closer through tabernacle, through the bronze altar, through the golden lampstand, through the showbread, to, through the holy of holies, to the temple itself, to the cross of Christ, to the resurrection of Christ, to the filling of the Spirit and the pouring out of the Spirit that this move of God has always been. You're wanted. You're wanted. I'm coming close. I want to come near. Stop pulling back, pulling back from me. I want to come close to you. And it's this image of me just pulling back like this. Am I capable of that kind of intimacy with God? Or could I just open up my hands and say, come, Lord Jesus, come fill my life? Because I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I believe that everything that's broken and sinful and falling apart in our world is due to a lack of intimacy. We don't know that we're loved by God. We have not experienced the love of God come near. We've got this poverty of intimacy. And I wonder, this is going to be a little bit deep here, but if some of us endure abuse because at least someone accepts me. And I wonder if some of us walk through addiction because at least we can feel a synthetic intimacy. And some of us consume pornography because it's an artificial intimacy. And some of us take revenge because we've been denied intimacy, refused intimacy. And we fight because we're hungry for some kind of love, some kind of validation. And I wonder if some of us waste our money and make or impulsive decisions and overeat because the reality is who cares? 
Like, actually, who cares? I don't think anyone cares. But what if? But what if today we could hear the good news at the heart of God that God wants you? What if you and I knew that the God of the universe wants you and that for years he's been moving towards you and that for years he has not been pulling back but he longs to give you all of himself? How many of us in the room have felt unwanted whether it's through rejection of family, rejection in relationship, maybe rejection in the workplace with jobs, careers, and deep within us, we want to know that, the, that someone loves us, that the God of the universe loves us. And so, friends, hear this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Can we stand together? We're going to pray. But we're actually going to pray to be able to receive the good news. Northangley, just so you know, I've been praying about this moment right here. This moment in the service, and if you are willing, would you close your eyes? And if you're willing, would you hold out your hands as we often do here at the church? It's simply a posture of receiving a gift. It's a Christmas posture. Receiving a gift. I believe the gift Jesus wants to give you today is to simply tell you that he wants you. Would you just take a minute and listen? What does he want to say to you? as you listen or feeling like a voice of condemnation is there, you can just go ahead and tell the evil one to go ahead and be gone. He comes with a voice that always condemns. Jesus, we pray that the evil one would have no authority in this room, that only your voice of great love and grace and truth would permeate this room. Remind my friends that they are deeply loved, Remind us of your sacrifice on the cross and we see your arms stretched open and we see the nails that pierced your own body. And with great love, you just, your arms are open for the whole world. And Lord Jesus, we receive the gift of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Christ in us all of us in you. Heal us, O oh God. And we pray that we would know that we are wanted by you.
North Langley in a couple minutes here. Um, we're going to sing and just the prayer team will be at the front ready to pray for you, ready to pray for maybe even a friend that's on your heart if you want to intercede for a friend. If you just need a touch from the Lord to know you're loved and wanted, you can come forward. Prayer room is in the back as well. And so we welcome you, Holy Spirit. Do what you need to do in this room today. I pray that none of my friends would leave this place without knowing how wanted they truly are and how near you've actually come.